Hello, and welcome to the Novel Analyst Podcast. My name is Jed Hearn, and it is normally my job to analyze a story to help you become a better writer. But this episode is a little bit different. Because it is titled 2018 in Review, everything I read, favorite books, and key writing lessons. And you guessed it, I'm not just analyzing one story in this episode. I'm going to kind of analyze quite a few. Specifically, all 61 that I read last year. Let's go. So, last year I set myself a reading goal of 60 books uh, for the year. So by the end of 2018, I wanted to read 60 books. I achieved it. I read 61 books. Um, a little bit more about why I don't think it was a good idea to set a number goal for myself in terms of writing. But first of all, I'm going to run through a list of everything I read last year. And I want to make sure note that, you know, this isn't necessarily in order of preference. I'm going to get into that later. Um, it isn't also necessarily in order of the chronological order I read it in because I'm reading off my Goodreads page and it has the dates messed up a little bit weirdly. Um, but anyway, let's get into it. So first book I read was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire by J.K. Rowling. Um, probably the 10th time I've read that. Love that book so much. Then it was Canticle, A Canticle for Lebowitz by Walter Miller Jr., um, which is this really interesting 1960s, I think it was, sci-fi set in a far future about a monastery that's attempting to preserve the knowledge of humanity after, you know, nuclear war has kind of wiped out all the planet. Really interesting read. I'm going to describe a bit more about that later. Next was The Anatomy of Story, 22 Steps to Becoming a Master Storyteller by John Truby, which is probably the best writing advice book I read last year. Again, I'm going to describe this in more detail later. Then I read The Stranger by Albert Camus, Half a King by Joe Abercrombie. Joe Abercrombie is one of my favorite authors, and this is a really good jumping in point to Joe Abercrombie's books if you haven't read a lot of fantasy before or haven't read any of his stuff before. Uh, it's basically just this pretty, like, short action-packed book about uh, a one-armed king who is exiled and has to kind of work himself up from being a slave to regaining control of his kingdom. And it's just told in Abercrombie's wonderfully, like, you know, gritty but truthful and emotionally resonant voice. Next was The Three Body Problem by Six and Lou. I hope I'm pronouncing their name right. Um, and this was interesting because when I kind of first put the book down and finished it, I was like, oh, that was... It was all right, I guess, but it wasn't that great. And then the more that I thought about it and the more it kind of knocked around in my brain space, the more I realized how sort of deep and interesting it was and how it wasn't interested in just sort of flashy action scenes. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. But it was interested in really going deep. And if you don't know what this book is about, basically it's about a sort of bunch of scientists on Earth who discover this like weird virtual reality video game um, about the three body problem which is essentially an attempt to survive on this other planet orbited by three suns and their alignment is just weird and you can't calculate it and sometimes when the suns all line up everything on the planet dies and goes to a crisp and it turns out that this game is actually sort of a sign of something more I won't say what more it is um, but just think about the fact that it's a sci-fi novel um, and some things that sci-fi go, go places with. Uh, and it was a really interesting read. So despite the fact it wasn't initially amazing, it was one of the many novels I read this year that got better the more I thought about it. Next was The Dry by Jane Harper. And then next was The Heroes by Joe Abercrombie. Oh boy, this was so good. So, so good. Um, way back in episode number two, I believe, two or three, I covered this in a podcast episode in depth. So 
If you're interested in finding out why I love this book so much, um, go ahead and listen to that. Next was The Emperor's Soul by Brandon Sanderson. Really good short novella that uh, won some pretty awesome awards. And it's a really good jumping in point if you don't really know much of Sanderson's work. And again, this is one of those novels where, you know, as I was reading it and sort of after I finished it, it wasn't that amazing. But then the more I thought about it, and the more I thought about the themes and characters and everything, it just sort of like posthumously grew richer. And I think that's a sign of a good novel because as important as it is to go off your initial expectations, whether that's really good or really bad, I think that there's something to be said for novels that get more powerful the more you think about them. Next was a non-fiction book, The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. Interesting read how he, while I don't necessarily agree with a lot of his philosophies, how he sort of predicted a lot of economic futures that are now realities. Next was Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, and this was an amazing read. Um, I actually got my dad to read this, which was pretty cool because he doesn't read a lot of books, but basically, when you go into sort of these novels that are presented as, you know, quote-unquote classics, you can kind of go in with a bit of cynicism, and you're like, yeah, all right, sure, it'll be fine, I'm sure it'll be really meaningful or whatever. But this was just amazing, like, it exceeded my expectations so high and I think what I enjoyed about it the most was actually the action. This is a very tightly plotted, very fast-paced novel. So, you know, as, w as good as it is to read for the themes and, you know, what it's saying about how we try to destroy knowledge and censor things, it's actually more interesting to kind of read this from an author's perspective as a study in how to pace your novel. Next was The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, who unfortunately passed away last year. And this was just a really kind of nice, slow-burning sci-fi novel. I think a lot of the times my preference strays towards things that are really fast-paced and sort of adrenaline-pumping and that, but what this novel really demonstrated to me is that you don't need to have a lot of action to... Well, you don't need to have a lot of external action scenes for your novel to be gripping. This is a novel that's very much internal. It's about character development, it's about themes, it's about subtlety, and it just shows how you know, a slow burn can be just as interesting as a fast explosion. Next was Time Management for Architects and Designers by Theobian Mann. Um, this was a pretty good book. I read this because I am an architecture student who is interested in time management. And yeah, it was good. Um, it was probably a little bit outdated just because it didn't really deal with a lot of the digital things that we have to deal with today. Um, didn't really deal with a lot of the technology side. But it was still kind of just this good grounding thing. Um, and I actually ended up writing a time management for architecture students book later in the year, uh, which you can get for free off Amazon if you are interested in that sort of thing. Um, because, yeah, I really wanted to create something that was a bit more relevant for architecture students today, given that we are sort of in the digital age. Next was Story, Substance, Structure, Style, and the Principles of Screenwriting by Robert McKee. Fantastic, fantastic writing advice book that is a must-read for, you know, I would really say that this and The Anatomy of Story are must-reads for any authors wanting to, you know, improve their craft. Um, and I'll talk a bit more about why this was so good later. Next was Structure for Architects, a primer. Again, read this for university. Pretty interesting, but, like, not the kind of thing I would recommend to people who aren't doing architecture. Next, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold by John Leclerc. I really can't pronounce his name, sorry, John. Um, this is a really interesting book because... I went to, I think I bought this when I had just come back from Berlin last year when I was on exchange 
studying in London. Um, and I hadn't actually read it until this year, which happens with a lot of books that I buy when I'm overseas and feeling pumped up to sort of learn more about, you know, cultural aspects or whatever. And then I never end up reading them and I read them like next year. This is a really interesting novel set in the Cold War. And I think what's really cool about this is it was just tonally very good. Um, you know, I didn't really like the characters that much, but the tone of the novel and the setting and just the sort of how it explored the Cold War was really interesting and compelling. Next was Firefight, which is the second book in the Reckoners trilogy by Brandon Sanderson. Um, you're going to hear Brandon Sanderson's name a lot because he's probably... 2018 for me was really much the year of Brandon Sanderson in terms of reading. Um, you know, I think he's probably my favorite author working at the moment. And I just really respect his ability to, you know, produce a tremendous amount of output, output uh, and to make novels that are really compelling and have amazingly gripping plots and great endings and awesome characters as well. So Firefight, really good novel, um, just continue to kind of expound on the fallout from the first novel in the Reckoners trilogy, which is interesting because the first novel in the Reckoners, Steelheart, which I also really loved, um, I read that in 2017, that was really nice and self-contained at the ending, but Firefight somehow managed to find a way to continue the series in a meaningful fashion. Next was Before They Are Hanged, which is the second novel in the First Law trilogy by Joe Abercrombie. Love this book. Joe Abercrombie is also one of my favorite writers. Um, I have one of, my, one of my best friends. Whenever we are talking about like stories or whatever, I will always find a way to shoot him like Joe Abercrombie and Brandon Sanderson because I really love these authors. Next was Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Again, this is another one of those classics where you're like, yeah, okay, it's a classic. Sure, it's going to be all right. It's just amazing. It's amazing how well this predicted, you know, how humanity's enslavement won't come from an external dictatorship like in 1984, but it will come from the sort of internal shackles we place upon ourselves, our desire for short-term pleasure over meaningful long-term things. So this was a really, really good read, definitely one of my top reads of last year. Next was Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Again, like, it's amazing how I think I really need to stop having these preconceptions of classic novels, because a lot of the times you know, when I think about these things, like I said before, I kind of am like, yeah, sure, like, lots of fancy, you know, old professor people are saying these are really good, but I don't know if they'll be engaging for me. This is, again, one of those novels, super engaging, um, super interesting. What I really love about Kurt Vonnegut is how he shows that, you know, sci-fi and aliens doesn't mean you can't be serious, um, which is something I hugely agree with. Next was The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Oh boy, I love this book so much. Covered it in episode number one of this podcast. I think what was really meaningful for me about this book is it's very much a book about a boy going into a very different situation. And to some extent, this sort of paralleled how when I read this book, I was doing an internship at an architecture firm in Vietnam. And, you know, I was in, this is the first time I'd stayed for such a long period in a non-English speaking, well, primarily non-English speaking country. So in some extent, I almost felt like a little bit of an outsider, and that made Quarry's story in this book really relatable. Um, next was Ready Player One by Ernest Cline, which I had read before, and I've also covered in earlier podcast episodes, so be sure to check that out. And then was The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson, first book in the Stormlight Archive. This was incredible as well. Like The level of world building um, and character depth was really interesting. And I think it's the character depth that made this really good, because... This is, you know, like a massive epic fantasy novel, and a lot of people sort of talk about it as being this amazing world-building piece, which it is, but a lot of people kind of don't really mention how 
strong it is in terms of characterization and how it uses different points of view to really create a lot of complexity between character relationships. Uh, next was The Final Empire, which is the last book, uh, sorry, the first book in the Mistborn trilogy, which I actually read way earlier in the year than The Way of Kings. So Goodreads is stuffing up my order here. But anyway, this was amazing. Um, I have done a podcast episode on this as well. Uh, and I just really liked, you know, the world building in this again. Uh, and I'm going to talk a bit more about this later, so I'll shut up for that for now. Next was No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy, Red Shirts by John Scalzi, Calamity, which is the third and final book in the Reckoners trilogy by Brandon Sanderson. You know, Sanderson is a master of the ending, so I really shouldn't have been surprised by how good this was at the ending. But it was an amazing climax, and I actually found myself in tears at the end. Because he just managed to wrap up these threads that I thought were always going to be sort of, you know, dangling loose. Next was Elantris, also by Brandon Sanderson. His very first published novel and an amazing read. Just because it's his first doesn't make it any, you know, worse than his other novels, so really good. Next is Midnight, uh, which is Skullduggery Pleasant number 11 by Derek Landy, who's also one of my favorite authors. This was really, really good. Um, it's kind of interesting because the novel was very much divided into two sections. The first is very character focused and sort of, you know, like quite interesting in how it develops on the fallout from the original Skullduggery Pleasant series. And then the second is where it like ratchets up to an 11. Um, and the pacing and the tension and the suspense just goes through the roof. Really good read. Next was Boone Shepard's American Adventure by Gabrielle Bergmoser, who I interviewed back in earlier episodes. I think it was episode number five, don't quote me of it, of the podcast. Um, really enjoyed this. What was apparent to me about this novel is just how much fun, uh, you know, Gabrielle seemed to have while he was writing it, at least as, as much as I could tell, because just fun and, you know, excitement and, like, this sort of whimsicalness bleeds through in every page of the story. Next was Stardust by Neil Gaiman. Very first Neil Gaiman book I've read. I need to read a lot more of him. Then was The Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick. You know, Philip K. Dick is interesting because, you know, sometimes while I'm reading his stuff, again, it's one of those things where, like, while I'm reading it, some of the prose can be a little bit grating, but then, like, the themes and the deeper underlying truth and exploration of the novel makes you keep thinking about it for ages. And The Man in the High Castle is basically an alternate history novel about an America where um, the Axis powers, so like Germany and everything, won World War II, and now America is sort of this half-German, half-Japanese sort of colony. Next was The Lord of the Flies by William Golding. Um, fantastic level of pacing and suspense, actually, and action in this novel. And then was The Wise Man's Fear by Patrick Rothfuss, the second book in the King Killer Chronicle. Going to talk a lot more about this later, so I will leave it at that for now. Next was The Getaway, Diary of Wimpy Kid, book number 12 uh, by Jeff Kinney. I love the Diary of Wimpy Kid series. Um, you know, I definitely don't think people should be looked down upon for reading things that are funny and engaging, even if they are aimed at a younger target audience, because I think there's a lot of sort of deeper truth in the Diary of Wimpy Kid series, um, which is why I own pretty much every book uh, in the series. Next was The Last Argument of Kings, which is the final book in the original First Law trilogy by Joe Abercrombie. If you've read this, you will know what I mean by the next sentence. This is probably one of the best endings um, out there at the moment in fantasy. It just, it does this thing where it's incredibly circular, um, and if you think back to sort of how the first novel in the trilogy begins, 
the last argument of Kings, its final line is just transcendent. Next was The Well of Ascension, Mistborn number two by Brandon Sanderson. Again, just like Mistborn is just so solid. I love the trilogy so much, and I definitely mean to start on the second uh, sort of Mistborn uh, saga this year because it's really good novel, amazing world, amazing magic system. Next was The Hero of Ages, which is the third book in the Mistborn trilogy by Brandon Sanderson. Like I said, a lot of Brandon Sanderson on this list. That's because he's an amazing author and incredibly prolific. And this just brought the trilogy to a really good end. More on that later. Um, next was Warbreaker, also by Brandon Sanderson. I think Goodreads has grouped all my Brandon Sanderson into one area here. This is really cool. It's a free book available on Brandon's website. Um, so if you haven't read any of his stuff before, it's a really good jumping in place. Um, and this was a really interesting, I think, character piece because it just had like some of the deepest characters out of all of Brandon's novels. Um, so that was really cool. Next was On Writing, A Memoir of the Craft by Stephen King. This is a phenomenal book, not necessarily for concrete writing advice in the same way that John Truby's stuff or Robert McKee's stuff is, but it's really good for looking at motivation. Um, and having read this, it definitely fired me up in my writing journey, I suppose. Next was The Hundred-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out the Window and Just Disappeared by Jonas Jonasson. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. Um, next was Nexus. Next was Nexus. That was a bad choice of words. Which is the third and final book in the Zeros trilogy by Scott Westerfield. Then we have The 80-20 Principle, The Secret to Achieving More with Less by Richard Koch. Um, good productivity book. Rowan of Rin by Emily Rodder. Architect and Entrepreneur, A How-To Guide for Innovating Practice, Tactics, Strategies, and Case Studies in Passive Income. Eric Reinhold. So as you can see here, some of this stuff is just things that are Uniquely interested, um, uniquely tailored to my interests as an architecture student. Next was Reader Magnets. Build your author platform and sell more books on Kindle, which is a free short ebook by Nick Stevenson. Um, really good insight into how you can be giving away free books to sort of build your author brand and build your email list of people who want to hear in you. So I would definitely recommend that out to any authors trying to, you know, get more people to read their stuff. Next was Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, which I read because... Um, Gabriel Bergmoser recommended it to me um, as a discussion for our interview back in our earlier podcast episode. I don't read a lot of crime, but this was super compelling because it was just, it just had like such a good depth of characters um, that I suppose I don't really perceive as being present in crime, but they just were, you know, intensely well-developed, um, intensely complicated and complex human beings in this novel, which made it really engaging. And then on top of that, you had, had a really good thriller plot, really good pacing. Next was Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture and New Earth by Charles Massey, which is essentially a book I read for university, and it's basically talking about regenerative landscapes and how we can design landscapes that make the world a better place. Next was Into the Woods, A Five-Act Journey into Story by John York. Um, more on this later. Really good book. Next was Boone Shepherd, The Silhouette and the Sacrifice by Gabrielle Berg-Moser. Uh, a podcast episode on this is coming out really soon, like within a week. So stay tuned for my discussion of that. Really enjoyed this book, and I will explain more about that in the upcoming episode. Next was The Black Prism by Brent Weeks. This was really cool, especially as a massive fan of Brandon Sanderson, because um, Brent Weeks had a really cool magic system in this book, which is basically based on basically based, man, I'm choosing some weird alliterative terms today. The magic system in this book revolves around this idea of draining color from things, um, 
not really draining color from things, using color to fuel your magic. And then once you sort of have that, you can be creating these solid forms. So whether those are like catapults or boats or slides or anything like that, really cool. Sort of like Green Lantern almost, um, but in a more sort of nuanced way in a fantasy setting. Next was Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if your life depended on it. A non-fiction book by Chris Voss, who is a retired FBI hostage negotiator. Um, this was really interesting looking at ways that you can you know, sort of use negotiation to get the best outcomes for both parties in it. Then we had The Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov, which is his very first book in his sort of robot series. This was really cool because I wasn't expecting the depth of um, sort of world building and the amazing setting he created in this novel. The setting is basically this big city where it's just all enclosed. People kind of travel around on these like weird strips of travelators in the sort of, I suppose, underground levels. And how it works is like each strip of an L escalator is like a meter wide and there's like 60 strips. And each strip goes at like one kilometer faster than the other. So whenever you want to, you can board this transport system at any time simply by just like walking onto the first strip, which is going slow. Then you go into the next strip and it's a kilometer faster and you work your way over to the further strip. And now you're hurtling through these tunnels at 60 kilometers an hour. And on top of that, it was just a really interesting detective uh, novel that really went places I wasn't expecting it to. Next was My Name is Leon by Kit Dewar. And this was, yeah, a really interesting kind of examination of how we can sort of use causes and um, sort of, I suppose, activities to get over hardship in our life. Because in this novel, Leon is a young boy who is struggling because he's gone through some rough things. Um, he's sort of Mom has sort of been neglecting of him, not really through her fault, but through other circumstances. And he has to sort of rebuild his life, and he does that through the relationships he forms with these strangers. So this was a really interesting kind of, you know, more of a, I would say more of like an introspective character read. Then we had Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. This was a really cool novel. It's basically a heist set in a fantasy world, kind of similar to Mistborn, about six misfits who have to pull off this impossible heist. Um, and it's a really interesting examination of character and character conflict between all these six different misfits. Next was Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes, which I covered in an earlier podcast episode. This is the second time I read this book. Loved it just as much, if not more than the first time. Then we had The Meltdown, which is the 13th Die of Wimpy Kid book by Jeff Kinney. Really good. Love Die of Wimpy Kid so much. Um, just have like an incredible fondness for her, and it always makes me laugh. Next was Who Moved by Cheese by Spencer Johnson, which is this short non-fiction book about how our expectations can make it difficult or easy for us to overcome adversity, depending on how we set those up. Then was The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger. This was a really cool book, and I loved how it used detail to characterize characters. Um, man, I'm really bad with that alliteration today. What I mean by that is that... It was able to be specific in how it described characters' interests or characters' actions. And as a result, it made them feel more like real people. So, you know, it wouldn't just say, oh, they were listening to music. It would say, like, they are listening to this specific Tchaikovsky, you know, I was going to say album, but that's not the right word, uh, you know, orchestra piece. 
Next was Anthem by Anne Rand. Um, recommended to be my friend. And this was really cool because it was just this really short sort of dystopian read about the importance of sort of freedom and individual self-determination. Did dissolve a little bit towards the end in sort of just preaching and saying like, okay, story's over, here's the theme. But it was still super engaging. And lastly, oh boy, this was big, but we did it. We got through it together, guys. Nice work. It was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Probably the best non-fiction book I read last year. Um, and I will explain a bit more about that later because we're moving into the second half of the episode, which is not going to be just me randomly spewing out names of novels you may or may not have read. Um, and I will be looking at the top five fiction books I read, the top five writing advice books I read, and the top non-fiction books I read. So top five fiction, and these aren't necessarily in order of preference, they're just how I've got them listed down here. The Heroes by Joe Abercrombie. I covered this in an earlier podcast episode, one of my very first episodes. Um, and I think the biggest lesson that I learned from this as a writer is the importance of truth. Abercrombie often describes how the best piece of writing advice he got was from his mum, who said, it doesn't matter what you're writing about, it doesn't matter if what's happening in it is realistic or not. The only thing that matters is that you're writing about truth, that you are you know, injecting emotional realism into your novels. So it doesn't matter if, you know, it's a fantasy novel with magic. It can still be more true than a novel that is about, I don't know, some struggling artist who works at a bakery or whatever. <laughs> because truth is how you connect with readers and create emotional resonance. Number two, The Wise Man's Fear by Patrick Rothfuss. I think I enjoyed this even more than The Name of the Wind, which, again, one of my favorite novels um, covered in my first podcast episode, because it just took Quoth, who is the main character, and it started to really elevate him to the mythical place which he is sort of foreshadowed as ending up at, because the novel is very much split into two sort of segments, I suppose. Well, like two segments that swap and change between the book. Um, you know, one is sort of set in the present, and the one is set in the past. Um, the one in the present, Quoth, is sort of this legendary figure, but in reality he's now just like working at a bar and he doesn't really have any magic anymore. And in the past, he's just this young boy who's trying to make himself a legendary figure. So this novel was really interesting for how it sort of, I suppose, sort of joined some more of those dots between Quoth the young boy and Quoth the mythical legend. And the biggest writing lesson I learned from this is the importance of style. Now, I kind of sort of struggled to bring this up because I really like describing writing lessons here that you can take away and start applying to your own work. But style is something that's quite nebulous and something I haven't really figured out how to explain in a concrete way. Because I think what makes style good is how it's unique. The quality of style is that it's something that every author develops by themselves. So take from that what you will. Number three, Mistborn, The Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson, which is the first book in the Mistborn trilogy. Again, did an earlier episode on this, so if you want more in-depth uh, analysis of that, feel free to check it out. But I think the biggest writing lesson I learned from this is world building, and specifically the importance of, and we don't say world building, um, you know, I mean in terms of like setting and place and creating a fantasy world that feels, you know, immersive and realistic and cool and fun. Um, and what's the biggest, you know, best thing about the world building in Mistborn is that Sanderson doesn't just design a world to be cool in this case. He designs a world that is relevant to the theme. You know, the theme of the novel is very much, and the character growth is all about um, Vin sort of 
developing as a person and learning to trust other people, and that's shown through her relation to the setting of the novel. At the start, she's really afraid of the mists and the, you know, things that might lurk in it, and at the end, she claims the myths, the mists, and use it to overcome the antagonist. Number four, A Canticle for Lebowitz by Walter Miller Jr. This, again, like I mentioned earlier, is a sort of uh, post-apocalyptic sci-fi saga, really, about a future world where nuclear war has devastated everything and people are trying to kind of rebuild, um, and it follows this monastery which is sort of attempting to preserve the knowledge of the past and just sort of, you know, work in a way to improve the world. And this is really interesting because it has a really incredibly rich theme that struck with me, which is this idea of history moves in cycles and that we're going to make the same mistakes over and over again. Um, you know, like the novel is divided into three segments, each segment is 600 years apart, and you see how it goes from people thinking, oh, like, you know, nuclear war, that was a bad idea. And then in the end segments, you know, it's kind of repeating itself again. Um, but I think what was interesting about this is how it portrays the big picture aspects of this idea. It portrays the macro notions of this theme of history moving in cycles. But it also shows the small scale impact that this has on individual people's lives. So this novel just has this amazing capacity to transition between looking at the big picture to the small picture. And lastly, number five, Mistborn, The Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson, which is the third book in the original Mistborn trilogy. I think what I enjoyed most about this and the biggest writing lesson I took from it was the importance of having a solid ending. Because Mistborn was amazing throughout. And then this ending, to cap it off, was just spectacular. So those were my top five novels from 2018. And here were kind of the top four writing advice books I read last year. Um, actually, the only four writing advice books I read last year, so kind of automatic. But they were all really good and I would all definitely recommend them. And I've you know, mentioned these so many times ad nauseum throughout all these podcast episodes, so you're going to see a few familiar names here. First of all was The Anatomy of Story by John Truby, which I have talked about and used and referenced tons of times on this podcast. But I think the most important thing that I took away from this book, if I had to sum it up in one kind of logline, would be the importance of having a theme or a guiding principle, something that unifies everything in your work so that it's all thematically resonant. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be writing a story with a quote-unquote message or trying to like drive a point home or whatever. It's more about letting the theme develop organically. And then once you realize what your story is trying to say, you kind of, you know, extract that and then you double down on it. Number two was Story by Robert McKee. And this writing advice book contained the single biggest lesson that I learned in 2018 about writing. And what I realized was the biggest unifying principle of all my favorite characters. And in one word, that was contradiction. For example, let's say Jim is a really nice guy at work, super pleasant to everyone. Then he gets home, super pleasant to his family. Not interesting at all. Let's say Jim is really pleasant at work. Let's say Jim gets home and Jim is an absolute horrible person to his family, like kicks a dog or whatever. And... What this is doing is you're creating contradiction between how a character behaves in one setting versus the other. And that contradiction creates complexity and three-dimensional characters. And this very simple idea by Robert McKee, I realized it was present in all of my favorite characters um, in 
all of my favorite books. You know, there's either contradiction between who they're trying to be and who they are. There's contradiction between what they say and what they do. There's contradiction between how they behave in one situation versus the other. So contradiction was probably the biggest thing that I learned from writing advice books this year and something that I now use in all of my stories. You know, I do like a contradiction study of my main characters and try to figure out what are the contradictions that are defining them. Next was On Writing by Stephen King. And this was really good, not so much for tactical writing advice, although it had plenty of that, but more for motivation. I haven't actually read any Stephen King novels. I've watched a lot of movies based on his work, but reading this book made me want to read his stuff because he just writes with such a powerful and emotive and just really compelling voice. And I think more than anything, the thing I took away from this was just how important it is to write if you are a writer and how, you know, you can really get a lot of motivation from it, from this book. And then the last really good writing advice book I read last year was Into the Woods by John York. And this key lesson that I sort of learned from this book was the importance of structure. And it gave this really clear roadmap in particular for the essential components of an act. And I think it's interesting because I read a lot of writing advice books at the start of the year. You know, when I read this particular book after having read Story by Robert McKee and The Anatomy of Story by John Truby, it was really fascinating to see some of the common threads between the books. So, you know, they all agreed on some certain things, but then they also disagreed on some things. And I found that really empowering because it means that structure is universal enough to be true but there's also room to work within it and also adapt it to whatever form searches for you. And then lastly, my top non-fiction book I read last year was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. This is a fantastic piece of non-fiction by a Jewish psychiatrist who in World War II was imprisoned in Auschwitz and survived the experience and then wrote this book as partly a memoir of what life was like in a concentration camp, but also how he learnt a lot of valuable lessons about meaning and motivation and how to create you know, a good life from his time in the camp. And in particular, he mentions that there are three key ways that we can achieve meaning in our lives, and this really struck with me. So the first way was through experiencing something greater than ourselves. So that could be through art, that could be through loving someone else, things where you are generating sort of satisfaction not from your own ego but from an external thing outside of you that's bigger than you. The second way which is particularly relevant for writers is that you can create meaning through the process of creating something that is bigger than yourself like writing a story. You're writing something that is bigger than yourself because people will read it without you being there. And then lastly the really kind of sort of keystone way that is explored in this book is that people can achieve meaning through how they respond to unavoidable suffering. Viktor Frankl is not saying that suffering is good. He's saying that we should do everything we can to eliminate suffering. But he's saying that in the case of, if you are in a situation where there is no way out of the suffering, how you respond to that creates meaning. So for example, there's a bit in the book where he's counseling uh, someone whose wife has died before him, and that guy is inconsolable. So Frankl says to him, would your wife be sad if you'd died before her instead, if the roles were reversed. And the man said, yes, of course. So then what Frankl said was, well, by you suffering and by you outliving your life, it's meaning that it's taking away from your wife's suffering, because it means that your wife is never having to suffer the burden of outliving you. And his patient 
just stood up and thanked him and was fine forever because he realized that his suffering had meaning. Through his suffering, he was sparing someone else's suffering. And the instant that suffering kind of has a meaning, it ceases to be suffering. So Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl was a really excellent non-fiction book. Um, you know, I read mainly fiction and stuff, but this is a book that I underlined a lot, uh, and I'm definitely going to reread again. So to finish off this marathon episode, uh, thank you for sticking with me if you're still here. I mentioned at the very start how I had a reading goal of 60 books for 2018, and I read 61. So obviously I was happy with that, but it might be surprising to you to think that I don't actually currently have a similar goal for 2019. Why is that? Well, I think it kind of negatively influenced my reading choices when I told myself that I had to get 60 books read, because it meant that I would sort of prioritize books which were short, you know, over books that were maybe longer, even if I thought I would enjoy the longer books more. So this year, I want to try to, you know, not let that restriction constrain me into my reading choices. So I don't currently have a reading goal for this year. Um, and also this year, I want to kind of try and read more widely from a broader range of authors and perspectives. Uh, and of course, this comes with the caveat that ultimately, I want to read what is most enjoyable, meaningful, and fulfilling to me, regardless of trying to just get like a big variety of things, even if I don't enjoy everything. Um, you know, like there's nothing wrong with just getting a whole plate of hash browns at the buffet rather than trying to like pick everything. Um, so here <laughs> on that food note is my kind of farewell for 2018. Goodbye 2018. I know you, you finished a few days ago, but I'm saying goodbye to you now. Um, and here is to another great year of reading. Hope you've really enjoyed this episode. Um, and if you have any books that you were particularly fond of in 2018, I would love to hear your number one book that you read last year. And you can send an email to me at jed.hern1 at gmail.com. That's jed.hern1 at gmail.com. Hern is spelled H-E-R-N-E. And let me know what your number one book was from last year. I respond and read every email. 